Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Marina Abramovich is an artist who for more than 50 years has pushed her mind and body to their limits. Whether walking into a fire and almost dying from smoke inhalation, being stripped and attacked while passively allowing the public to manipulate her with tools and weapons, or sitting without interruption in MoMA for more than 700 hours. She's currently in London playing Maria Callas on stage at the English National Opera, and she's got a major retrospective of her work on at the Royal Academy. We brought her together for a live on-stage interview with the director of the Design Museum, Tim Marlowe, to talk about nomadic journey and spirit of places. Marina's new book, collecting notes, sketches, poetry and doodles made while travelling the world. Both the book and the interview offer a unique insight into her extraordinary mind. Marina had her artworks from the book on display during the conversation and refers to them at times. Sadly, I can't, in this not-visual medium of podcasting, share them with you, but I think what she has to say is interesting enough in every instance to keep these references in. Hope you enjoy their conversation. Whichever question I begin by asking you, Marina, in all the times I've known you, I've never got a straight answer. So I'm going to try for this time to see if I can. So the book is Nomadic Journey, uh, and it's about the places, in particular the hotel rooms, that you've stayed in over the last 40 years. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful amalgamation of everything from cutouts and poetry and aphorisms and thoughts and doodles and photographs, and actually thoughts and sketches for works of art. So where is home for you? Is it somewhere? Everywhere? Nowhere? Where is it? Okay, to tell you the truth, it's in my body. I have no home. You know, I, I, of course I was born in ex-Yugoslavia, and uh, I always felt I was there thrown by some kind of m- mysterious willpower of some angels, and I never felt home there, really. And I had this old guy, he was called Tibor Sekel. He was a very old gentleman, bald, with the big thick glasses. And he was an anthropologist. And he would go, actually, every year to go to some amazing countries, to meet some kind of ex-cannibals in New Guinea. Or he would go to, to some you know, Amazon tribes who are extinguished. And then he would get this amazing material, and then come back end of the year. And I will be 14 years old, and I was sitting in the first row, and eating every word he said. And this was like really thinking about the planet as, the, as a home. And I, all what I want is to live and, you know, just see all these places. And which I then mostly, you know, and when I really realized that actually when you travel as much as I did, you can get claustrophobic. Earth is not as big as you think. And then become the home, you know, my own body. The idea that you didn't travel much when you were a child or it wasn't possible, I suppose, may have generated the idea to travel. It's very eloquent and moving to hear you hear about this man. But when you were thinking about travelling and when you began to travel extensively after leaving Yugoslavia in 1976, did you ever have a destination in mind? Or is it still an endless quest for somewhere that you may never find? Because one of the things that strikes me about your work is often the works, they don't have an end point that seem predetermined. You, you, you go through the process. The journey is, is the work, in a sense. No, first of all, I didn't leave 76. I leave 75, and I escaped from. And I was 29 years old, and my you know, mother go to the police and say, you know, my daughter disappeared. 
And then they say, you know, the, the police say, but excuse me, how old is your daughter? I said, 29. And she said, Kamrad Abramovich, we have much more important things to do, it's about time. And this is when I left to Amsterdam, and, you know, I never actually returned after that, except only occasionally, when my parents were still alive. But then, you know, the, the, the really, it's important, you know, there was a different ways of traveling. Sometimes I will blindfold myself and just... Uh, you know, pick up the map of the world and see where the point comes and goes there. It's really important that the, the journeys were not always prepared, but they're open and uh, full of experiments. I was always liking to go to places who don't have electricity and don't call Coca-Cola and no hotels. You know, there's something so hard to get to these places. You know how many, it's hardly any place without Coca-Cola in this planet. It's, it's so difficult, but I was always going for the real adventure. Belgrade is interesting in the book, though. Because, I mean, we should talk about how you've actually structured and compiled the book just in a minute. But I noticed, reading through it, flicking through it, that often there are Belgrade hotels. So this is return, I suppose, in, in a sense. So um, is it strange? And, and is, is the preponderance of Belgrade hotels a sign that actually you think in a different way, even if it doesn't feel like home, it's where you grew up. So when you go back to Belgrade and stay in a hotel, fertile imagination takes place. It's a life and hate relationship, you know. It's it's that there is there is you know really difficult childhood that I had, which uh, that I don't like too much remember except when I made my memoirs. I really kind of explain to details, and then you know I hated Christmas, I hated New Year, I hated my birthday, anything that family should be together and happy because it was always bad memories for me. And even now, you know, like I'm leaving England after you know the four months being here, exactly 31st of. January, no, 31st of December, because I know the first the plane is empty because it's New Year, and the price and the, the, the price is half, half price the plane ticket. <laughs> I, I didn't think we were going to get travel tips tonight, but Very that's practical. absolutely absolutely, absolutely marvellous. Um, so you mentioned writing the memoir, walking walking through walls. I mean, and in some ways, uh, we've talked earlier about the kind of cathartic process of that, and you sort of living and recollecting your life and, and telling that amazing story. But this is also a book of recollection, but it's not systematic. Uh, I'm not saying it's chaotic, but there's a very interesting process here. How did you make the selection of these uh, these memories, these recollections. So this book is incredibly close to my heart, and I had an enormous joy of doing it. And really, this book is a result of 40 years. In my life, everything kind of takes a long time. But actually, the moment I start traveling, the, that there was the, for the first day I stay in very very cheap hotels. I stay in the hotels with actually the the roll of toilet paper was more expensive than the room in the hotel. We are talking anywhere in the middle of India, you know, and the places that you know God say goodbye. But the, basically, then later on my life get better. Then I go to one star, minus three stars, four stars, and you know I get now to five stars. But then every time there will be these stationaries in the hotel. But and I will always keep them. But they will, you know, really keep the stationaries as a memory, also as a kind of, uh, you know, the, the traveling journey that I will remember where I was in in my life. 
And this stationery was just, I was collecting in one box on one side and another box on another side, all memorabilia for these journeys will bring me. Can be, you know, piece of somebody paper, can be drawings, can cut through a newspaper, a collage, you know, the events from, from the daily news, whatever I could find, writing my own writings, my own drawings and so on. And then it's 40 years later, now, now when I was having this, the, the finally to have the Royal Academy show, I was thinking this is the time to publish this book. So I had one box of stationaries and another box of memorabilia. And then I love using John Cage, the way of doing it, the chance operation system. I use chance operation system even for the very important moments in my life. I will just ask the question, throw the coin, and mostly you hate the answer, and that answer you hate actually the best answers, and then you do them. So in the same case, I will make chance operation, and then I will kind of mix the pages and, and the hotels. And then also the same way, the, the random pages will come out. So now we have a 400 pages who actually are not in any kind of order. They're just coming as a random. But then, the same way we should read this book. This book is not something that you read from the first page to the end. You should actually take this book in your hands, you know, just close your eyes and open in any page. And any page will be, you know, good for that moment. And it will never actually get bored because it will always find something new. This book is actually journey and is also the, the experiment in the same time. Well, thanks for telling me that now. I mean, as a literalist, I sat down page by page making certain notes thinking, oh, we might get some patterns or whatever. But I, I, you do say at the beginning, part of that chance process. Just, just before we actually look at some examples. We just, need to talk about yeah, just, just, yeah, what, what, one, just one sec though, one further question. Are you systematic enough? I mean, do you, do you, make, do you collect things almost as a matter of course from every hotel you stay in? And, and you just bring it all back and they're dumped in boxes. Is this, is the resource almost every, a memory of almost every hotel you've ever stayed in? That's what the selection is here. But you know, first of all, I come from communism. Every single little note can be evidence. You know, so we, so, so we collect everything. The little pieces of paper, you know, survey that you make a drawing in the restaurant, things like that. You know, I, I actually collect them and I store them in my, in my storage. So I, I never, you know, I just have them in the boxes. I don't have them around. And then is the moment when I open the box and I look at them. So can we talk about the cover, please? We can. This, this act of self-incrimination. Let's talk about it. So yeah, the cover, where, because I thought to begin with, that must be you so, and your grandmother. So, no, this person I never saw in my life. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. You know, I cut, cut this from the, from the Slavic newspaper. It's still Cyrillic that you can see. I cut this who knows how long ago. Maybe I was in my 20s. I don't know. But there's something about the woman with this stick and the little boy with the stick. And this, she can be the grandmother, she can be a woman of wisdom to show the little boy the road. This was something about two of them with these big eyes staring at me that I collect all these years without knowing what this actual image is going to finish. And look at this, it's perfect image for the cover. And I have no idea who they are. And it's called <laughs> Nomadic Journey and Spiritual Places and perfectly fits. It does, okay, let's... Let and who am I to impose a narrative that it may be evocative of you and your grandmother? Wrong. Okay, um, and that's another book. But this is a good thing, that you can actually project anything you want. That's yeah. exactly what is a good part of this. 
Yeah, but it's wrong. It be your grandmother. Yeah. Uh, so let's take. Is there any, any similarity to your grandmother, maybe? No, we're not getting into my um, parents because you, you did that last time we did a conversation where I'd said to you, uh, having read your book on holiday, uh, when, uh, the proof of it, that I uh, I'd really enjoyed it. I didn't know you'd had such a traumatic relationship with your mother, and as my own mother was with me at the time, it made us feel good about our relationship. You then summarised that when we'd had a conversation next, saying, can I tell everyone about your mother, Tim? Tim's had a terrible relationship with his mother, but having read my book, it's healed. So it then... <laughs> So, so then it took me about two years to explain to my mother that wasn't how I felt about her. So it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. So no, we're not talking about my grandmother. Um, let's, let's, um, let's go on some of the, the journey, because you, you've selected images, and this would give people a flavour. I don't need to... Should, should we talk about, I mean, this is just the, my drawings that I made in Oxford Museum, for Pete Rivers Museum. They are actually the, the, call, the whisper, the, the ghost whisper. They're made out of the bones, and the little hole is actually covered with the membrane of the spider, and you have to whisper, and then the, through the mouth comes the sound of the, of the spirit. And that's fascinating. They're really very old and ancient, and I just make drawings out of them. But okay, never... Let's go into this one. This one is like our, you know, we we love the romantic, uh, you know, music the, 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 from Russia, like Volga, Volga, or Chicharne, all this kind of very, very cheesy, you know, sentimental songs. And this woman I was listening a long time, Olivera Markovic, and this is my mother, my, me, myself, and my brother. So this kind of perfectly fits to this little hotel story. Okay, let's... You know, I paint, I do lots of drawings with snakes, let's go on it. I made energy caps, you know, that, that you can actually collect energy if you, like, you know, like the witches in the, in, in, in your country, but this is the called energy head. Keep going, well, you don't get any this commentary in the book, Baksu. so let's just keep okay. going. This, this hotel box, so this was definitely minus three stars, you know, and... <laughs> it, it, they had these incredible things. You know, it's so interesting to go to the places where they're so, you know, way and different than from our own, you know, way that we can think about Western life. You know, it's just different. You know, they will, how I can say, okay, can I tell you just one example? Please. So, just about this hotel. So, I stay in this hotel, and they told me, whatever you do, you can go absolutely, the most important, to go to the clean restaurant, otherwise you get sick in India. Okay, so I find this village perfectly clean restaurant. I go, I eat a great meal, and I finish the meal, and I just to pay, I stand up, and this huge rat come and just jump on the, on the table. And I scream to the, to the guy, rat, rat, rat. He comes and say, what's wrong? I say, this is the rat. He say, yes, this is my good, healthy rat who keeps sick rats away. It's all good. <laughs> and, and, and he, he comes to eat the, you know, good, good, just leftover food. So you see, you have to get adapted to this kind of stuff. You, you have an incredible memory. And obviously, it's triggered by all of these. How specific? Tito um, die. <gasps> this was so incredibly important for me. I was in Amsterdam, Tito died. It was four hours of funeral. I cried from the beginning to the end, and I knew everything's going to change. There was nothing be the same, and nothing was the same after that. There came, you know, this complete uh, separation of, of one country became six countries, and, and, and still is a mess. But that was the moment that was in German newspaper, I cut it. And I remember that moment of history, how things are being, you know, different. 
I mean, Tito was fantastic. Tito was like the guy who goes to Russia, take the money, go to China, get the money, go to, 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 to America, get the money. We never pay anything. We never worked. The people, we had a great life. And, you know, it was incredibly important you know, in the way how democracy in our country works. We knew very, very clearly if you make political joke that you get four years of prison, if you get political joke, including Tito, you get six years, so you can choose. All clear. <laughs> I feel you should just carry on. Um, the, the, um, what's interesting, though, Marina, is we, we often read the personal into an artist's work and obviously your embodiment of your work makes it intensely personal but I'm struck both by the dispassionate nature of a lot of your work and also even though these are intensely personal memories in theory they're not confessional diaries they're kind of abstract or detached thoughts about the world triggered by newspapers or ideas that you're having. So this was really important for me. I, you know, I traveled to Japan so many times, and I actually made an entire little book called Space in Between, when you actually leave the home and security in one place, and then you go to another place. You're in the space in between. The space can be aeroports, can be you know, bus stations, can be you know, countries in between. When you leave your own the, the security and you go to something which is you know, different and open. This is the place when destiny is possible. This is the place when anything can happen. So I call this uh, space in between. And then this is the, you know, in one of these trips, you know, I had so much traveling that I got the, the, my eye burst, you know, the, the, I had a really problem with my eye. So I, I just made this little image and I say, side effects of too much of in between. And I remember that I traveled so much that I came to New York and I went to the cinema and automatically I start put the seat belt because I, I <laughs> I, it, it was automatic. I didn't even think of it. You know, just sit well, like I'm in the plane. So anyway, side effects of, of, the, of too much in between. And of course, my fascination of the knives. If you went to the Royal Academy, I had one of my first performances with the knives. So everything is important. Everything played the role. Everything had some kind of puzzle to explain. You, you do have a, a working space. Let me, let me get a question, otherwise we're going to find... Um, so you do have a working space in New York, and you have studio space upstate New York, and that's where all the archive is, which obviously has been the trigger for this book. Um, but we get the feeling that you're just as happy working peripatetically, and in fact it's what you do wherever you travel. Do you need to travel in order to work, or do you work as you travel because you want to do both in parallel? I How does that work? It's a really important question. I actually... I hate studio. I hate passionate studio. Studio me for me is total trap. You know, people come to studio every day and sitting in the studio intellectually you start thinking how am I going to make this work or that work and sometimes you inspire but sometimes you're not. Sometimes you do all kinds of different shit and you don't actually work at all. So to me it's so important to do life. From life comes the work and, the, and the, when you do the life then the work comes as a surprise. It comes like a almost like a hologram, like a three-dimensional picture in your head. You see something, you understand, oh my God, this is amazing, I'm going to do that. And then if I start feeling incredible, strange sensation in my stomach and fear, I may go, oh no, I have to do this and I'm afraid, or they don't like it, that's perfect reason to do it. So, so actually, 
in the in-between state is what actually roots or triggers the work. It, the, the idea that a hotel room is, by definition, a peripatetic place. It's never going to have any semblance of permanence. That's what, that's what appeals. That's where, yeah. that's where you work best. Yes. And then, can we read some spirit cooking? Oh, yes. Okay. I love spirit cooking. I, I, there, there's a lot of it's problem with spirit cooking, but this is something else. Okay, breakfast. Nine glasses of water. Lunch, nine glasses of water. Dinner, nine glasses of water. Okay, then, with a sharp knife, cut deeply into the middle finger of your left hand. Eat the pain. And then another spirit cooking. Fresh morning urine, sprinkle over nightmare dreams. Actually, they're poetry, but I like them. I, I make them out. Yeah. It's the kind of behaviour that get me thrown out of a hotel, but it's the kind of behaviour that obviously... Uh, and by the way, for this same poetry, I've been accused, you know, that yeah. that I'm satanist, but that I'm not... No, we should pick up on that, because, so I want to pick up on that in a minute. Um, so, but spirit cooking was something that you did, uh, I mean, at home, in the kitchen, but why was there a trigger in a hotel for spirit cooking? Was this where it evolved? No, this was in the box. I had two boxes. One with stationery, completely empty, and one with all these writings that I had to separate. And then I took them as a trans operation system and I mixed them together. Ah, so the paper is used randomly as well? Yeah. They're not Compl always used everything in Everything is situ. random. Okay, the so paper, the order, everything random. So let's talk about the Satanism before, because it's quite interesting to know that you have been accused of Satanism. You're interested in spiritualism, you're interested in the energy of things, you're interested in a kind of parallel worlds or universes, but what was the specific conditions that led you to be accused of Satanism? Wow, this is a long story, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I need to address this because it's, but anyway, it's so easy, just Google my name and you get the whole story there. But it, it's... It's really, really interesting story. This is Spirit Cooking that I made a long time ago. There is also a book, and this book is in the Museum of Modern Art and is a few other museum collections. And now we are talking about Hillary Clinton and uh, Trump to get elected. But five years before that, the John Podesta, who is my old collector of Washington, is... I asked him to come to do one of the, to have dinner with me because he support my institute to do the spirit cooking dinner. Spirit cooking dinner is is like this, you know, is is a poetry. I will I will say, let's I'll tell you one more recipe. Uh, take uh, nine fresh leaves of green cabbage, mix with thirteen thousand grams of pure jealousy, put in iron pot, cook till the all water evaporate and eat just before attack. I mean, this, as you see that, that, you know, and then I will serve maybe potato puree with the lamb, you know, something like that. So never mind. So this, then I invite him to, to come for my spirit cooking, you know, the dinner. So he sent me the letter and say, but you know, my brother who is, if he's in New York, I would like him to come, you never met. And his brother is John Podesta. John Podesta was working with the election with Hillary Clinton. But again, five years before all of this, and, and I sent him the letter, but he never, I never met him, he never came to dinner, he was not in New York, nothing ever happened. And then, five years later, 
the Hillary and, and Trump start getting election. And as they want to find every dirt on Hillary, they came WikiLeaks. You know story about WikiLeaks. They look five years in backwards. Every letter John Podesta ever get. So they found the letter. They have no idea, Trump or any of them, who is Marina Abramovich. They find the letter. The, Mir the Marina Abramovich is inviting John Podesta for spirit cooking dinner. <laughs> then, then they Google me. So when they Google me, I am having five-star point, you know, burning the five-star point star, you know, communist, but they, they, they misunderstood for Jewish. Then, then I'm cleaning the bones, which I got the golden lion because it was against the war in, in my country. Everything look for them is a satanism. So they immediately label me as a satanist, as a pedophilia, and I'm eating children. So before was... I, now I am actually upgraded. Now it's not anymore, you know, the, that I'm just priest, I'm high priestess, and it's not anymore that they eat for 800 children, I actually eat 8,000. I mean, you know, things are developed. So this is something that, that I, it's all America, and all from this, that's the situation. I came out of the spirit cooking. I mean, same man who actually have his own program about, uh, you know, the, the conspiracy theory, same man actually deny the Holocaust ever happened, and same man actually was the, the judging 36, you know, parents who the children been cut in massacre, that actually they are the actors and they're not real, and they are they're there they're, they're because they, they actually, the government want to take weapons from American people. I mean, this is the... You know, long, long well, story. But one of the things about travel is, uh, often it gives us a chance of anonymity, or we can lose ourselves. And, and, and often a hotel room feels like a kind of refuge, although n not for everyone. But I'm curious about, I mean, that, the story about spirit cooking and then the intervention, in, I was going to say the mainstream media, but the sort of lo loopier ends of the mainstream media. Do you f find that you change in any substantial way your practice or your approach as an artist, the more prominent and successful and notorious you become? I mean, do you work with this or do you try and escape it? I think I'm really, the, the, first of all, to me, the work changed me, not the glamour about the work. Because I think that, you know, being, they always say, oh, she's so glamorous, she's in with art, and she's now the kind of the star. It's, it's really never my aim as an artist. My aim is really to how I can lift human spirit. My aim is how I can, you know, be heard, because now I can be heard. When I started doing performances in the 70s, nobody was even thinking this was any kind of art to start with. So now is, this is the change. And I have incredible responsibility for young generation, the public and artists, because that's the people who really follow my work. Not my generation as much as the, as the young generation. That's really the effect. You know, before if I had uh, 10 people, it was like huge public, 20, oh my God, what are they going to do? And now it's thousands of people, and that's really responsibility. So so that doesn't really doesn't change me. I don't care, you know, what how people project on me. It's very important that my ego is is humble, and that's a very important quality. Because if you have the ego high as a Himalaya, your your creativity is ruined. You can't create because you think you're better than others. It's really dangerous. Can we just talk about Tumo? It's such interesting. This one, you know, Tumo state is the exercise that the monks they do in Himalaya, they're sitting naked, 
on the minus 25 degree, and they actually visualize fire in the solar plexus, so they can raise the temperature by the will on every part of the body. And even monks, they do, they do kind of competition, they will put wet, wet towels on their shoulders and see how many they can dry. It was incredible how much the Western body is so limited with technology, and how Eastern body can have this incredible knowledge that we actually have completely abandoned. So, which are techniques? It's called Tuma. Yeah, state. but there are also techniques that you've, in through travel, you have learnt other approaches, other techniques that you can use in your own work. Yes, and this is what a really change comes from. Not because you think you're glamorous or not. The change comes from inside of you. That's real change. And you know, my performances, I put such a high bar on my work that performances are so difficult and so incredibly intense. That's actually, every time you finish one of this work, you're changed, you're not the same. Ah, this is funny. This is my Las Vegas 50th birthday. 60th. I, okay. No, no, 60, sorry, not 50, 60. <laughs> I, I, I celebrate the book intensely. I celebrate every, every birthday, 50, 60, 70, and now it's coming 80. But this is, it was 60. I was thinking of fun. Okay, okay, this is, we have to read this text. Oh my God. So, I found these things in my, in my correspondence. So, this is a Carol Schliemann text from the 1968. She made a lecture in London Institute of Contemporary Art. She said, can an art historian be naked and woman? Does the woman have intellectual authorities? Can she have public authority while naked and speaking? Was the content of the lecture less appreciated when she was naked? What multiple levels of uneasiness, pleasure, curiosity, erotic fascination, acceptance or rejection were activated in the audience? I love this. This is 68, kids. 1968. I mean, what is happening with the political correctness now? It's really interesting because this was a show, I was looking at, it's called When Attitudes Became Form. So it's seen in the history of art as a kind of anti-formal extension of formalism where ideas superseded formal objects. So it was, it was, the, it was the kind of acceptance of the launch of conceptual art institutionally in London. But you're right, it's the content that's interesting in that more than anything else. So, <laughs> what are your answers to those questions? Yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> <laughs> Little drawings, let's go for. I like this one, this is real phone number, but don't dial. <laughs> do you know, I said to Marina, a couple of days ago when we were planning what we might do. I said, look, whatever you do, don't get loads of images because we can't go through it like a kind of racing commentary. We have to have a few to focus on. She went, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> and uh, why did I bother? So this is a kind of parallel conversation where I'm having a conversation and she's going, yeah, yeah, yes, 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 yes. Right, next image, next image. Anyway, this is what you don't get in the book. So it's priceless. It's kind of, it's wonderful. Um, so I'm going to add another question in here, if you don't mind. Uh, answer it or not, the, the, you, you talk about your work being without ego, and actually, I, 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 I buy that. But I do think that a lot of performance art, because it involves the individual artist, your body is your home, it's your body that's, that's the, the means through which you realise your art, 
it does focus on the individual. But of course, one of the things you, you have wrestled with over the last 20 years, and is very apparent at the Royal Academy, is how you take your work away from just you and how legacy and re-performance is something that you want to look at in the way that theatre and opera and other performing arts uh, are manifest. As you're quite a long way down the journey on this, and, and as yet another major institution is re-performing, um, how does it feel to you now? Um, is this a journey that you feel more in control of to some extent, that it's, it's, it's going in the direction you want, or does it still feel uncontrollable, letting other people re-perform your work? No, no, it's, it's actually going really well, because there are two things. You know, the one thing is, the, in the Royal Academy, we have 42 actually young artists re-performing the, the, the original pieces, and then we have the, my institute, which we had in South Bank, which we had 11 artists from nine different countries performing their own original work, long durational. This is two different things, and I am all for the for the young generation and all to you know to, well, institute is very very active. We are doing workshops now. We're doing about ten workshops per year in Greece, and uh, but not just workshops for the for the artists. The workshops for everybody. You know, just anybody can come and do the workshop. It's very simple. You're, you're applying. You you get. Uh, you immediately they take in your telephone, you watch in your computer, detox for, for one week, you you don't eat for five days and you don't talk for five days and doing very heavy physical mental exercises. And then you after that, with this experience, you actually go to your own life to do whatever you do. You can be a musician, you can be a dancer, writer, you can be working in the factory, you can be a lawyer. You know, I just said this funny story with a guy who was 65 years old and he came from Germany, very bad mood. And as we don't talk to him, we didn't know who he was till the end of the five days. And finally, as days goes, you get better and better and better. On the end, he was really happy. And then we finally talked to him and I say, but how are you ending this workshop? And he say, you know, my wife gave me a birthday present to come to the workshop with you. <laughs> so he could not refuse. And then he was a really famous the architect for, you know, environmental architecture. And he was super happy and, you know, want to come again. So this is really what we do. You know, we open for the public and also for the artists. But the public have to be taught how to see long durational. This is so important. Because you can't understand long durational work if you just come out of the street and see something which actually nothing is happening. That's the really the, what long durational performance is. Like in the house with Ocean View now, we have three artists performing this piece. One just finished. The next one is coming now starting 18th of November. Please go to see it. It's 12 days without any food only drinking water, living on the three structures. What does she have to do? She's not talking, she's peeing, she's taking three showers a day, lying and sitting and looking at you. And a public comes and sit for hours. So it's so interesting why it's happening. Because there's no theater piece when you have beginning, the end, and development. There's nothing. She's not doing anything. It's not, it's not, she's not going to do anything, and nothing's going to happen. And you still can't leave. What do you think? Why? I saw that piece in New York in 2002 when you did it at Sean Kelly Gallery. And when you go to New York uh, as a relatively young curator, art historian, you go and see everything. So I, knew, I, I realized I wanted to see this, but you're on that ludicrous time constraint. So I sat in the gallery and I watched you do not very much for about an hour and then thought, well, I've got to go now because I've got other things to do. Whereas at the Academy, the re-performance, I sat for a lot longer because 
actually, I, I knew I had to make time. And I think your idea about durational work is a really interesting one because we all grasp conceptually that this is something that takes place over two weeks or 516 hours or the artist is present in New York for the three and a half months. But by definition, we can't participate in all of it, so we only understand it through the fragment. But I'm very struck by you talking about training artists and that people who come off the street, it, it, you can't understand it till you've put yourself through that intense, it's not boredom, is it? But it's actually the numbingness and the meditative quality of learning to do nothing. And that is really interesting, I think. Um, anyway, that was a statement, not a question. Um, so, um, but... but in the re-performances now, are you learning about your own work or practice, or does that feel resolved? I don't mean your practice in general, I mean about the works themselves. The House with the Ocean View, you did it, it's a completed piece, it's now being re-performed. Does it seem something that can evolve, or does it feel complete? No, it's, it's incredibly emotional. I can't even tell you. The moment when I see this piece reperformed for the first time, when I know that I'm live and I see the piece as actually don't belong to me anymore, it's up there to the other generation and it's going to walk, you know, the, the, the kind of travel around the world and probably the person who performed bring their own charisma, they bring their own the, the ideas how they should be performed and their own self. And, and, and that's actually okay. And I have to give up, you know, my ownership of the piece. And this incredible, painful process, very healthy, very healthy, because the work is 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 like a child, you know. It does at one point it grow, it doesn't belong to you. We, I have to give up the work. You know, it's it's very interesting the statement that I always like with uh, Martha Graham. She said always, wherever dancers stand is the holy ground. And I always love this sentence that. I, that, that I invented and say wherever public stand is holy ground. To me, the public to accept this piece and, and, and just, you know, the kind of takeaway with, and, and it's not belong to me, it's, it's really important. And this is happening right now with everything I do. I mean, with all the works right now. Because, you know, I, I, I just done opera because, you know, you have a certain limits with age. You can, but at the same time, you know, you have to know that the artist is present. I made when I was 65 because I could not do earlier. I could not earlier, because, not because I didn't have energy. I didn't have wisdom to do it. I didn't have concentration. I didn't have willpower. I didn't have any of this that I could do that piece because it was a hell. And I have to train one entire year like an astronaut only to eat in the night and drink the water in the night to change my entire metabolism system that I could do it. And this is something you really need to be older that you can actually have this kind of motivation. I'd just like to say that this is a hard-won position, and it was really, I think, at the Guggenheim with the seven easy pieces where you persuaded a range of a fairly celebrated performance artists to let them, let you re-perform work by them. And that was quite a battle. It was kind of a struggle to allow Bruce Nauman or Vito Acconci or Valley Export. I mean, they acquiesced in the end, but it was quite an interesting moment, wasn't it? I mean, that, does that still seem pivotal? It does to me, looking back at your career, but that's irrelevant, really. How do you see that moment? You know, but this is a very important moment that changed everything, because my generation stopped performing a long time ago. You know, the Vito Conti had the architectural office, and he was busy with architecture. The Chris Burden didn't really do performances anymore. So if performance was very demanding to have a long time, you know, to do the long time. In the end of the 70s, there was nothing to sell. The, the, the artist was just, uh, you know, the gallery was nothing to sell, the museum was nothing to show. So there was huge pressure on the market. So the 
I always have this, okay, I was, I'm going to say something nasty. I always think that the bad performance artists became bad painters, but that's my opinion <laughs> in those days. But anyway, everybody was starting doing different things. And Ula and me, we went to nature, we went to deserts, we lived with aborigines, with shamans, we just never wanted to go back into the, to, 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 to do physical work. And then, you know, things, things really changed. So there was nobody territory performance. You know, young artists were looking to the old works and they're actually doing it without paying respect for the original work that was done. And young critics, without knowing history of this arts work doing work in the 70s, was prizing this work like it's brand new work. And it was not brand new work, it was just copying. So then it was not really fair. MTV, uh, advertising, fashion, fashion just looked into the pictures and then you know create the images. I mean, I have the Stephen Maisel who literally copied 20 pages of uh, performance Ula and me with the cover of the Vogue Italia, like identical. And so, you know, I had enough of this because if you take Bach or piece of literature, you have to pay for the rights. So I decide I'm going to make seven easy pieces, which I easy, of course, it's a metaphor because I took a difficult one. Um, to actually ask permission of the artists living and the one who are not living, who are the foundation, to you know to do the work, and then to pay them, understand the original material, and make your own version. And this came, you know, and that really took establish a kind of system how it should be done. And now, you know, people really asking me for the for the rights. Not always, but there is a much better situation than was before. Seven is a mystical number in many cultures and in arts. You've had seven easy pieces. Perhaps there's another pivotal piece now, which is the seven deaths of Maria Callas. And there is actually an image of Maria Callas in the book. And I noticed that apart from the hearts with which you surround it, it's on the hotel, I think it's the Hotel George. But anyway, it's an Athens hotel, which obviously is Callas's, she was born in America, but she was Greek-American and Greece was certainly uh, felt like her home. Um, so let's talk about the operatic performance and Callas. Can we, can we just see this one before, please? <laughs> What, why did I? Yeah, of course we can. Yeah. No, look, it's so wonderful, this one. I, this is one of my favorite pages. As for the eight long years, from 1971 to 1979, our extraterrestrial astronaut was to take refuge with his family on the farm in his native Ohio. For his part, Mike Collins, the third man of the Apollo 11 mission had a strange feeling of having been both present and absent on the same time on the earth as on the moon. Then I put little teacher there and one day will come that they will not come. I mean, look at this piece. It's not bad, this one. I, I like this. I'm speechless. Right. Okay. Now, now I'm doing the. I will, I now, will do whatever you want. No, no, okay. That was a lovely intervention. I'm not interrupting. Callas. No, no. Maria Callas. Where? I, I look for her. Okay. I don't know where. There we go. There it is. Yeah. So, there's, you know that there's a story, but the phenomenon that um, Nietzsche died the same year that uh, De Chirico was born in Turin, and. De Chirica always felt that metempsychosis had taken place and that part of Nietzsche's soul had been transferred to him. Now, I'm not going to overlay that with Callas because there's not an overlap on, on the birth and soul, but th there is a kind of strange growing identity in the way that Callas looked, the way that you look. And at the end of the performance, without giving too much away, you become Callas for a time. Was this a childhood 
engagement with Maria Callas? Was it something you fell in love with when you were when you were a young girl? You start really 14 years old, grandmother kitchen. I'm always having breakfast. The Bacalit radio is always playing, the folk music, the good music, the classic music, bad news, good news, whatever. And there came this voice. And I have no idea who she was. I stand up, I put the radio absolutely on the, on the maximum, listen with closed eyes and cry. It was the voice who was like moving me to tears. And then the speaker said, this was Castadiva Maria Kaus. And this was the beginning of that journey. And this was a long time. And it really was really all about emotions. And then understanding her life, reading all eight biographies, you know, the understanding that she really actually died from broken heart. And all the story was connected. The mother who was really difficult, like my mother, Sagittarius, like I was. So I become really obsessed by the Kaus and her identity. And her dead. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Did you always think you might make a work of art about that relationship, fascination, obsession, or did it only come to you later in career when it became possible that you might be able to do something operatic? I mean, how did, was, it, was, was that always something that you thought might generate some No, work? it was really very unclear in the beginning. I was just, you know, listening to the music and, and collecting images and stuff like that. But then only in, in actually, after I, I, I walked the Great Wall of China, I, in, it was in 88 that I went to Brazil. And I went to the mines, which is a Sierra Pelada, when they dig the, the gold mines, which is really in terrible condition. And I had a crazy idea that, you know, something to do about, actually the title of that work was How to Die. How to Die was that actually when we look in television, and we are looking at something which horrible is happening. I mean, we have plenty of terrible things right now in, 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 in our lives daily. You know, we will immediately switch off because we could not look at it, because we like something beautiful, we want something different, we want different state of mind. And I realized that actually, Everything to do with reality, we are refusing, but everything to do with the stage that we love, stage that move us emotionally. Stage, the beautiful dead of women in, in opera, the beautiful dead in, in, in a theater piece or in movie, then it's something we identified with that kind of dead. So the idea was to go to Sierra Pelada, where the, the workers die daily because of terrible circumstances you're working, and actually film the real dead, and then in the same time, film the three minutes of the dead of of the opera, and then put this together. And this was proposed to the, to the, the government in the, where I live in that time in France, because there was interesting, interesting you know, concepts, and I never got the money, and I never did it. And then passed years and years, and I wanted to do actually film, that I would have seven different uh, directors, film directors, and each of them to pick up one dead, and which I will do. This didn't happen either, this. Nothing really happened till one day I decide, I have to do everything myself. <laughs> and then I did it. Including die on stage. Um, it's, it's a very interesting and moving uh, experience, Marina, because actually those operas, broadly speaking, Italian, Belcanto, you, you know, you wait two and a half, three hours through the opera 
till the tragic finale of death. But here, it's not quite being beaten over the head, but you, know, you have to go through the trauma seven times. And I, I hadn't realised that the, the, the Brazilian connection is really interesting. So the relentlessness of, of death, actually, and it's, it's almost numbing, I suppose. Just pushing a little at this relationship with Callis, because the, the mother, I mean, Callis's mother was brutal, and as you have described in your book, as well as alluding to tonight, your relationship with your own mother was, was pretty brutal. But it's always said that, you know, you've, you have the tragic walk meeting Ule nearly in the middle, but not quite. You, you walk for more on the Great Wall of China. And that was the end, the lovers. That was the end of that period of your life. That was the end of that relationship. But so obviously it was devastating, but it didn't, it doesn't seem in retrospect that you had a broken heart, or if you did, you recovered. Is this an act of recovery, though, for Callus? I mean, to die of a broken heart, I mean, it was a heart attack, but to die of a broken, broken heart does, in a sense, reinforce the idea that's often spoken about with Callus that she was a victim. But I get the feeling from the way you deal with her that you don't see her as... I mean, she's, she's the victim of certain things, but she isn't a victim per se. Is that, is that right? It's a reclamation of her strength. Yes, and I was actually very angry on her because I was so angry because, you know, I was thinking if you have such a talent like Callus, you don't have rights to actually ruin it. As, as she did, because this talent belonged to everybody. And I think that in her case, the, the, the kind of um, um, work didn't save her. And she just, you know, she just died after Nazis died. And I didn't, I didn't have any, you know, with the, my relation with Ulay, it was very clear ending, and I didn't have no problem with the suffering of any kind. I had a different story with my the later husband, Italian one, which I actually really was thinking, I, didn't want, I was completely, you know, broken heart. But my work saved me, and her work didn't save her. That's the difference. I wanted to make homage to her. We've got um, time for questions and I was under strict instructions to make sure there was time for questions from the floor. I've got many more things I want to Can we change ask. the colours with something else? Yeah, you can put something else on. Um, see if you can do better actually by asking a question that doesn't distract here. Oh, but oh, can I show you this one in between? Yeah, this is funny stuff. You do this one and <laughs> while we do that the audience can think of questions but can I just say one thing please a question not an observation or a statement, thanks. We want questions. Marina, guess, go on. Okay, so, so I'm in, in Spain, and they want to do some, you know, the, the magazine cover, and they're so bored to do always the same magazine covers. So I was thinking, what I should do? I should ask them to give me one eagle and one baby tiger. <laughs> and, and then they really brought me baby tiger and eagle. And the guy who is, you know, responsible for this, he said to me, only thing that you should never have to have baby tiger and eagle in the same time in your hands, because the eagle is going to eat the eyes, it will take the eyes of the tiger, and this baby and very expensive. So, I <laughs> and I understood that, and the guy went to the bathroom. The moment he went to the bathroom, I took the baby tiger and eagle, made this photo, and then, uh, you know, he, I had to give back, and the shoot was completely canceled. So there's just that moment, is this is photo. And and, and how is the blind tiger? No, <laughs> no. The, the eagle didn't have time. The guy came out of toilet too fast. <laughs> Brilliant. Right, who wants to follow that? Um, questions, there's microphones, so hands up. Hello. Um, my question, Marina, is um, you've got a lot of experience of physical pain within your work, and you've got a lot of experience with um, being a female artist in a time where being a female artist, especially in performance art, was fairly controversial. So I was going to ask 
how you feel that pain has changed your experience of being an artist? But you know, in my work deals with just three basic human situations. I think every artist deals the same. It's the fear of pain, fear of suffering, and, and the fear of, of dying, mortality. And the different artists, you know, paint, the musicians make the music, the, the books that have been written. And I just stage these difficult experiences in the front of the public and, if, and to get rid of fear of pain. It's not that you can actually get rid of pain, but you can get free of, of fear of pain, to understand pain. And, the, and it's incredible when you enter inside the pain, it's like you're, you're entering into a secret door of knowledge. So to me, it was really important. And... I have pain. I, right now, I have constant pain with my leg that I have a problem. But I, I deal with this. I am I'm not against it. I am, I am not f afraid of it. So that's the really important thing that I actually try to, to communicate to the public. So, so, so you, you overcome your fear of pain by putting yourself through pain and coping, being able to cope with it more Yeah, but more. also to understand that actually you can, you can make pain disappear by understanding it. It's, it's quite interesting that our body is unbelievable capable of things that we actually never, never try to, 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 to experiment because we always use technology. I mean, talking about, let's say, simple telepathy. It takes four years to learn telepathy. It really works. So much cheaper than telephone, but nobody's, lear <laughs> nobody's learning it. And, and so many other stuff, you know. Yeah, I was thinking about pain, actually, and uh, uh, there's a gender aspect to it. I mean, if only you understood man flu. <laughs> but do you think there is actually uh, something gender-based broadly? That, because you've talked a lot about the, the traditional ideas of femininity and embracing female sensuality, sexuality. It is often said, because of childbirth, Be that, women, I'm, 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 I'm do this, that women have often the capacity or have higher pain thresholds. Is this borne out in your work, do you think? I have to add one more thing. Yes, absolutely, women have so much more you know, capacity to, to deal with pain. But also, I love the story that now the scientists discover that the, the, the cave paintings, the 95% of cave paintings are made by women, not by men. So, because men go to hunt and do whatever, and the men and the women are sitting in the cave, you know, taking care of children and doing art. So that means the entire history of art starts with women, plus tolerance to pain. I mean, we are winning here. <laughs> there we go. Hello, Martina, uh, Marina, um, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, David Lynch. I think I hear in the conversation with, that you have with someone not long time ago that you were thinking of working with him. And my question is, if, is there anything that you're going to do with David Lynch in the future? And also, what is next in, in your life action? So you're going to be next... In, in the stage soon, I mean, on, on doing performance life. So let's take the first one, which is um, about David Lynch. He'd heard that you were going to work with David Lynch. Presumably, Lynch, David Lynch was one of the directors you may have worked with on The Seven Lives yes, back in the day. Yes, I was dream to meet him, never did, did. You never did, so there's no plans there. And, and the next question was, what, what's next for you? Which is usually the wrap-up question, but we've got more coming up. But what, so what is next for you, apart from recovering from the Royal Academy? 
I'm not finished with Royal Academy yet. I'm staying here till really the last December. And you know, on this note, I wanted to actually ask you something, all of you. So, you know, I, I getting every single, almost every day, the, the request, as, as many artists do, you know, to do something about situation right now in the world. I mean, you know, I, in Ukraine, I was the first artist who, who, I think one hour after invasion, already support Ukraine against the, 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 the Putin and Russia. And now, you know, we have the Palestine and, and, and Israel, and it's, it's devastating what's going on. And I'm thinking now, you know, how, what would be my response to this? What would be my response to the artist? You know, I, I, it's not easy to an artist to make immediately work against something or for something. You know, to, to do the, 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 for my own country, when I was, you know, doing the, when it was, you know, the Balkan War, took me three years to create Balkan Baroque work. Three years to, took me to, to understand what's happening. And what I wanted to do at that time is to create something which is not just about that war particularly, but without any war, anywhere, any time, to have something transcendental that that image can use be used as a symbol for that. And if you look at the image, we can actually use it for this situation now here. But what I'm thinking now to do now, because my show finished the first of, um, of, the, of, the, of January, and I was thinking to use the, the day, 11 of um, December, because I'm very kind of tuned to the idea that it's going to be full moon on the 12th. And you know, 70% of, of the planet is on the water. And the 70% of the of the water we, we consist, you know, human beings. So that when moon is high, the energy is very high. So I wanted to use that energy going up, and I want to invite everybody, three o'clock through social media, all of you now here. Everybody, you know, you can hear to come to literally come to the into the in the front of Royal Academy, and I what I want to do, I want to, to talk. I don't want to talk about anything particular. I don't want to talk about Israel. I don't want to talk about Palestine. I don't want to talk about Ukraine. I don't want to talk about the, the global warming. I don't want to talk with the, with the Hamas. Nothing of this. All what I want to do is to get everybody together on that place seven minutes in total silence to give each other unconditional love. This is the only thing that we can, can really save us, to love for each other, love for unknown human beings, love for the people we don't know. That's the only thing I want to do. This will be my response to this situation. So I please come. So we'll, I mean, put that on a website. I mean, let's... Turn it into a social It's going to campaign. be everywhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great. Okay. Okay. Next question. Yeah. 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 Hi. Um, just a quick question. I know you were friends with the late Susan Sontag. Um, as a performance artist who values the participation of the public, what are your thoughts on her piece against interpretation? Thank you. You know, I was so incredibly lucky to know Susan Sontag five years of her last five years of her life. And it was so interesting that um, she came to, um, to see House with Ocean View, and like I didn't know at that time her, and she came several times, and when I finished House with Ocean View, Many people left me because I didn't talk for 12 days, but the people left me little little things like they give me the, the 
I don't know, Charles or, or flower or note or book. And there was a little piece of, of, a, of the new serviette from the restaurant and it was written, this piece is great, let's have lunch, Susan. I said, oh, God, she's, she, she was really larger than life, that Susan Zontag. She was so special. It's not just interpretation about that book, it's about everything she writes, her curiosity, her incredible knowledge, and her not being afraid to say things. I mean, I never forget what she said. The, the time after the 11, uh, 11 September attack on the national television in America, this, uh, there was such a courage to say such a thing. She said, at that time, why American people think that American life is better than anybody else's life? Wow. This was a time when Uganda was millions of people. There were so many people dying everywhere in the world. But this was very much focused on September 11. Uh, you know, it's just difficult to understand that human beings are important. No, it doesn't matter where they come from. At each human beings, it, it matters. And she had this very large kind of, you know, the, 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 the understanding of, the, of that. So, anyway, I love Susan Zonta. Okay, let's do the microphone over there. Thanks. Hello. First of all, Valavam. And second of all, I wondered um, what language you think in and then whether or not it makes a difference to you what language you dream in. You know, it's a really good question. I have no idea anymore. I, you know, I really, I speak French and Italian and it's kind of mixing up everything in English. And, and I, you know, I, I just tell you about one, my dream. Okay, you know, I think everybody really have a, actually appearance, I'm sure every of you have the dreams we're repeating, and you know, in, in your lifetime. And I had, a, for many, many years, the dream is repeating. And the dream was the same dream, that I'm always a suitcase going through the little forest, and it's far away, the house full of light, and in this house is always party going on. And there's always people who arrive, who I only know from the dreams, and they're always happy, and it's festive clothes, and it's beautiful music, and beautiful food, and we're just celebrating, I have no idea what. And this dream repeat, 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 and one day, I didn't this dream anymore, this dream. I take years I didn't dream this dream anymore. And then finally, very recently, I dreamed this dream, and this is, I'm going through the forest with the same luggage, there is the same you know, house with lots of lights. I go there, and there's a party, but everybody is very old with the gray hair. And, and I never dreamed this dream again. And I never knew that actually you can age in a dream. Next question, yeah, over there. Um, I'm studying graphic design and I'm 22 years now right now. And my question is, what would be your advice to yourself in your 20s as an artist? Oh, God. You know, I'm really happy that what I've done, I've done. With all mistakes I made, with all hell I went through, I think everything was for a reason, honestly. I would never have any advice to go all over again as it was, honestly. Because every single thing, every failure, every mistake, you learn so much. It's not about you know, going to straight line. It's ups and downs, ups and downs. And there's times when you think, oh my God, I did it. And then everything crashed the next day. You, it's, it's, it's all life is a learning. But what I learn now, that every day we have to live like a last day. This is what I learn now. That you never know. You know, that is something that can come in a second. And in this moment, in this place, you know, asteroid can just hit the planet and we're all gone. But we have, we always have this incredible kind of a 
kind of negation that we are there forever and we are so much full of bullshit doing things that we don't need to do, doing too much, doing things that are unnecessary. We have to focus and really do things matters. What failure, what work of art that you did that you deemed to be a failure did you learn most from? Oh my God, they made such a terrible work. You know, I, 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 I'm not going to tell you the name. <laughs> no, no, I was with Ulay. We, we actually, it was incredible. We made, we wanted to make very ambitious work that we invite two Aborigines of Central Australia and three Tibetan Lama. And we want to kind of redo something like a tarot cards as a stage. And I don't know, we never rehearsed because we never made a theater before and we had the public. And I'm, I remember I started doing this work and in the middle of the performance, I understand, this is terrible. <gasps> oh my God. And I can't get out of it. And this public is there. And, and the worse, the more I'm doing, the more terrible we become. And I remember, I remember finishing, and I remember really, you know, being sick and have temperature and crying for, I mean, I didn't get out of house for months. This was so bad. But then after one, I give another better one. But this was really, it's, failure is fantastic. You have to fail in order to, to, to understand, you know, where you're next to go. I'd like to do an exhibition about failure. It's a brilliant subject. Yeah, right, next question. Yeah. Hello there. Um, so my question is about how your relationship with the audience in the room in all of your work. So there's always an exchange of energy. There's always different shifting um, relationships between you and, and the viewers, sometimes very direct, sometimes slightly more removed. Um, and I'd just be really interested in finding out more about how your interaction with your viewers, um, if that's changed over your career, or just what that change in energy has brought into your work over time and what you've learned from it. You know, my relation to the audience is extremely important. You know, there's so many people, the, the performance artists who say, when they perform, they go into their space and they don't absolutely see anything and the oblivion of audience. For me, all of you matters. Like right now in this room, I noticed that nobody went to the bathroom. If there's any person went to the bathroom, I will wait for the comeback because otherwise I think I've done something wrong. And if the people leave, that means energy is going down. So that's very important. But honestly, the, another important thing is, is how to cap the audience. In only the way is to do it if you are with your mind and your body in the present, here and now. If I'm standing in the front of you, but my mind is, I don't know, in Holorulu or who knows where, I'm not there. And you feel it. Audience feel the fear. Audience feel insecurity. Audience feel when you are not there. So the being there and keeping that magic of being together in one space, it's everything. And the second thing is so important for the audience to show your own vulnerability because we are all vulnerable. I'm not showing any kind of superhero myself because I'm not. And I'm full of contradictions, but I'm sharing this with you. And when I share this with you, you can see your contradictions. You can project on me, and we feel much more comfortable. And then we can open yourself. And the moment you open yourself, you create the contact. And that contact is everything. Performance don't exist without audience. And the performance is time-based art, and it's an immaterial form of art. You have to be there to experience. And when you're there to experience, you can, can good performance can change your life because it's life energy and it's deeply deeply emotional when you really touch your heart that 
is really, as you were talking, it's really interesting to think that, so you're aware of an audience in its entirety when you're performing. And obviously in many pieces, uh, 512 hours and the artist is present, you are engaging in the most intensive way one-to-one. -one. So you're aware very specifically of relationship with, uh, uh, intensively with a part of your audience. I suppose as you've got more renowned and more recognisable, it's more difficult for you to wander through your exhibitions when you aren't performing and see the public engagement. But do you engage, are you conscious and do you scrutinise in different ways the way audiences are in your work? Or is it always that embodied, intense relationship as a performance artist and the rest you just leave alone? You know, which is really a very good point, because right now in Royal Academy, I can't go to walk, walk in my own exhibition because people should concentrate the work and not on me. And everybody wants selfie, want me to sign the book, want this, want that. And actually, I'm huge interruption in, in my own work because I'm actually deconcentrating the audience. So this is something that's really happening, which is kind of problem. You know, like, like all the, the, you know, the when I done it in West Bank, you know, when the artists performing. I try to minimize my presence as much as possible, not to be focused on me. I want to focus on the work that should be seen. And that's really become obstacle. I'm taking blonde wig soon. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's brilliant because actually it means that you have the capacity more than anyone else to subvert your own work, um, which is a, a, an interesting position. Hi, Marina. Uh, given all your decades of um, work, is there a particular period, you know, looking back, is there a particular period in history, you know, in, or a particular decade or a particular moment that you thought had a particular energy that, like, applied not just to you but to, the, to your colleagues, uh, your peers, for example, or was there a particular decade that you thought was great for art? You know, there was one period what actually was the entire year when I live in Central Australian desert with the two tribes, which I actually didn't want to go back because I've never been more happy in my life. It was literally living on nothing. We was living, you know, just in the ground and eating whatever was there. And I remember the most important two events of the day was sunrise and sunset, and that's it. And I, and I remember that incredible feeling of connection with the nature and connection with myself that actually was nothing necessary there. I was, I felt like complete. And I remember also after one year that I had this incredible urge that I can't stay there forever. And I was asking myself, but why have this urge? Why I can't stay there forever? And then I realized that I have this really deep down strong duty as an artist, whatever experience that I have to transform and create the message and give it. So that's all I always say to myself. I feel like a bridge between cultures. I go from one culture to get and then to another culture to give. And this kind of function is actually till now. So that's the, the urgency of every decade. But of course, the art historians and the commentators in us always want to look for significant decades, but artists invariably feel it's the next one, or everything potentially. I has. want to say something completely unrelated. Please you do. Know, I, but but I, that would be strange for this evening. No, no. <laughs> I just want to say that, that Tim and me, we speak, we, when we speak, which it was the, the king, Queen, no Queen, King Elizabeth, no, no Elizabeth Hall. Which hall? 
Uh, we have the, no, the Royal Festival Hall. Royal Festival Hall. We're talking 5,000 people, and it's lots of people. And I love talking to him, I, because there's somehow functioning always. We never prepare about anything, but everything always functions. How you explain Well, that would never have been apparent this evening, would it? <laughs> <laughs> right, last question from the balcony. Um, sorry that we couldn't have more from the balcony, but there'll be other conversations, I'm sure, in the future. Yeah. Hi, and thank you very much. It's a very quick question. Um, in your book, quite a few notes are typed. So I was wondering, did you carry a typewriter? And if yes, how? It's very heavy. I did. And also, I lived in the car for five years, and I carry typewriter all the time. And it was old Olivetti, if you just want to know the brand. <laughs> Marina, we're, we're bang on time. I know people want to buy the book. I know people want to get you to sign it. I've been asked to say um, that there'll be signing outside, but please, no dedications and no selfies. This is the organizers, not me, because it will give more people a chance to get their book signed. Um, also, as you've just said, Marina, no one's left to go to the lavatory. No one would dare to go to the lavatory. So people now probably at least can do that without fear of you waiting for them to get back. But chaotic, it may be, it's always a surprise, it's always a wonderful journey to talk to you, and it's always a wonderful journey to listen to you. Marina Abramovich, thank you very, very much. Thank, thank you. you. This episode starred Marina Abramovich. It was produced by me, Sam Agranti, and Nicole Wong. And the interviewer was Tim Marlowe. Our editor is John Doughty. If you live in or near London, you could have been there in person for tonight's conversation. Sign up to our mailing list and check out our website to hear about the live shows we've got coming up in early 2024. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.